Hey everybody, it's Mikey D. Welcome to my stoop. It feels like yesterday when we roamed this lost world. Our little town amidst a giant city. Quiet, crazy, wild, and sometimes lonely. Never boring, yet at times it was. It was a place where characters roamed and lived bizarre tales. Yet these were not works of mythology, and it's all tattooed on my mind. So sit back, and let me tell you the stories of this ancient city. Let's hang out together on the Stoops of Atlantis. That's an Ankylosaurus, and that, that's a Brontosaurus, but a Diplodocus is bigger. That one, that's a Pteranodon. No, you don't say the P. Iguanodon. That's a Stegosaurus over there. Yeah, the Flintstones are stupid. There were no people when dinosaurs existed. Yeah, that little pedantic wise-ass with a beetle's haircut was me. You, you see kids like that in every museum. The Museum of Natural History was an escape I loved as a five-year-old. A honey teen, you know, my block, was where I played with friends on stoops and asphalt, but my joys came from imagining things that were not there. Often the games I played incorporated the imagining powers. Playing various ball games was fun, but often not enough. I wanted to go see other places. But being out front on the street was a nice change from the cramped and often hot apartment I lived in. In the museum, however, I could stand beneath the towering necks of Brontosaurus and the flashing fangs of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I could explore darkened rooms aglow with cases of sparkling jewels and colorful minerals. And of course, a huge meteorite centered for all to touch. And then you were beneath the ocean. Incredible displays all around with seascapes and watery monsters. The largest, the blue whale, bigger than any dinosaur, a fact I eventually acquiesced, hanging above us. It was all magical, hyper real. My block was just real and well, mostly boring. Museums were cool. I was living in a railroad apartment, and it was a train with tight accommodations. Me, my mom and dad, three sisters with another in the oven, and of course Gypsy, our white lab. And we were all in a small two and a half bedroom apartment on the third floor. And I spent many a time at windows, surveying my two worlds. The front world was where the people, good and bad, worked and played. It was a world where I would play spot the car with my mom or sister. It was this game we made up where you each picked a color, and when a car passed of that same hue, you got a point. But it was also out this front that trunks beat their kids and cars burned, crashed, or ran over kids playing scullies, where criminals did their thing and sold their wares, where working folk hung out to get some air or shoot the breeze. It was Anthropology 101, Humans on Display. Back, though, was another world. Here, trees marched and kitties pretended to be jungle cats, where the slices of starry night posed above and where the birds lived and sang. From this window, I dreamed of exploring and foraging and digging and finding specimens for museums. 
It would be geology and zoology, astronomy, entomology, archaeology. But it was all just out of Palm's reach until 1971 when my dad bought the building with the beautiful crabapple tree that exploded with pink blooms every May. I was moving into a house with its own museum. Every day was a new expedition to explore that vastness that was my yard to this little kid with a huge imagination. I guess I would first flex my dendrologist skills at the study of trees. Well, at least I'd learned how to climb the big crabapple tree. The tree itself held out its fruit like a carrot to me. The best apples were always at the top. So little by little, I gained the courage to go higher and higher. It was nature at work, natural selection. The strongest survived to get the farthest fruit. And at the base of this tree were anthills. I'd crouch down and watch these little insectoid Nazis scurrying in ordered lines, doing whatever the hell they were doing. And they seemed to be doing it well, like armies of humans. So I guess this was anthropology. And then I did something bad. I grabbed a handful of ants from a hill across the yard, an enemy camp, and I dumped them on the crabapple tree ants. Yeah, war ensued. Little ant heads rolled and limbs were rent by deadly mandibles. Tiny swords clashed and little cannons were fired by helmeted ants with minuscule cigarettes dangling from their buggy lips. Little violent buggers. I kind of felt bad, but another day I stuck a firecracker on the anthill. As kids that age are twisted SOBs. Jeez, imagine if a kid were handed nukes to play with. Then one day I blew up one of my plastic army jeeps with a firecracker. A little pill bug had crawled aboard. After the explosion, well, there was nothing but a splatter of goo that was once a cute little bug, and my heart sank. I felt terrible. That was the end of my insect destruction games. Well, except for water bugs, but that's, that's another story. But I grew to love and learn about all the types of insects we had in my living museum. There were centipedes that would scatter when you lifted an old hunk of wet wood. Millipedes hiding in their old bags of leaves along with earthworms. There were these stink bugs that would scamper across the weedy soil and leave a nasty funk on your fingers if you touched them. It's kind of like a skunk, old coffee, and sour milk essence. I can still smell it in my mind's nose. And yet many of the aforementioned pill bugs that roamed the yard like little tanks, ladybugs added the pops of cherry against the greens of leaves, and grasshoppers leapt about like happy kids after school. And there were bees, and moths, and butterflies, and clouds of hovering gnats, and those amazing fireflies flickering the summer nights like Whitey's fireworks. But the Museum of Natural History didn't have an insect section. There were Asian and African mammals, but not a bug to be seen. So in this respect, the Museum of 118 was king. But the big building on West 81st Street did have that dark, mysterious gems and mineral section. I hear they're redoing this exhibit, and this kind of depresses me. Not because I'm against updating the specimens, but I have a feeling the new set will be brightly lit, sterile white walls, computer displays, all the mystery, the dark air that surrounds you upon entering the Earth's womb where rocky, glittering fetuses rest, will be gone. It would be more like a souvenir shop of earthly treasures. But when I was a kid, the light was low, the atmosphere black as space, with starry stones lighting the path. 
The first time my shovel unearthed a glittering rock in my yard, the soil too became part of the great museum of 118. I began cracking rocks open with a hammer, revealing crystal centers. Each rock was like a chocolate from a valentine heart, with dull gray exteriors, but inside filled with a red or white quartz or glittering black. Others had insides like abstract cave paintings of burnt orange and dull crimson. Sometimes it looked like coal, but like chocolates. The peak of the excitement came just before teeth split the chocolate shell, just before the hammer cracked the rock. What I really dreamed of finding was a fossil. It didn't need to be the foot of a baby stegosaurus or a skin imprint of an iguanodon. I mean, a leaf would suffice, or a twig. I mean, the exotic imprint of a praying mantis or a centipede. That would be good enough. The thought of ever finding and holding an actual fossil in my own hands, before my own eyes, filled me with this ongoing excitement. But years of digging and cracking produced tons of shiny treasures, but not a single fossil like the ones in the museum. Until one day at a family picnic at Silvermine Lake in upstate New York, I was about 14. I was climbing on some ancient erratic, dragged and dropped by some glacier eons ago. I was pawing through piles of loose rocks the size of cantaloupes, and it struck my eye like a neon sign. It was seashells, scallops, about six of them, embedded, printed in stone. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I had actually found a fossil, a fossil of sea life in the mountains. I mean, how old was this specimen? It had to be millions and millions of years old. One day I'm going to take it to the museum and get it dated. So, there were trees and insects and lots of minerals, but my favorite museum display only happened at night. See, I loved the planetarium. There were those scales that showed you what you'd weigh on other planets. I mean, my, my skinny little ass was like 500 pounds on Uranus. And there were more meteorite samples and amazing artist renderings of alien worlds. But the best part was taking a seat under that dome. Seated in the round and centered before us was that wild and weird machine with dozens of lenses, making it look like some extraterrestrial insect from planet Zygopagus. And a million bucks this thing cost. That's one of the first things the narrator would tell us. This machine, this projector of the cosmos, cost a bundle. Then the lights would dim, and no matter if it was a brilliant summer afternoon outside, or the sky was dirty cotton white dropping washes of flurries, the sky over my head was brilliantly clear. Meteors flashed and galaxies spun. I would be taken on a journey across space and time. When I got older, Pink Floyd and psychedelic lasers would fill the dome, but those starry projections made me an astrophile. I had my own band of dome sky over my yard. It was my personal planetarium. My dad bought a telescope the moment I showed interest in stars, just as he and my mom had bought me books about dinos or mythology or, or a microscope when I showed interest in tiny bugs and things minuscule. And it was always on those coldest January nights when the sky over 118 was the most crystal clear, when a lion stood guard over my yard. So we would bundle up, turn off the yard lights, and using the scope we'd peer up and as deep as we could. The scope was a refractor, and it was good enough to see the craters on the moon, the moons of Jupiter, and separate the seven sisters, the Pleiades, that beautiful star cluster rich with mythology. And I always felt I was the only one in the neighborhood who looked up. Was I? I'm not sure, but kind of felt that way. But I was glad my dad encouraged such endeavors. In fact, one night, 
You got the wise guys on the avenue to look up at the night sky. Go all the way back to episode one for that classic story. And if you wander around East Harlem, there are some unofficial museums. The neighborhood in itself is a museum. There's Holy Rosary and Mount Carmel churches that are filled with incredible stained glass from the turn of the 20th century, along with paintings and other relics. The architecture of the old brownstones are like rows of museum displays, some rotting and falling apart by time. Some have been torn down and replaced by supposedly more modern designs that kind of stand out like sore thumbs. The cobblestones that still roll across 118 off Pleasant Avenue are real-life displays of New York antiquity. The coal oven in Patsy's Pizzeria, the exterior of Rayo's, or the still-empty interior of Rex's Icy Store are all real-world museum pieces. And this podcast in itself is an oral museum, stories and tales of places, people, and events recorded for eternity to go back and ponder, to remember. Financially, I grew up in a middle-class home, but we were rich with the things that make life more interesting. Books were everywhere you looked. Music echoed in every crack. My parents are both very good artists, sketchers, painters, writers, photographers, and it trickled down to me and my sisters. It's in our blood. Museums were where Sundays were spent, not shopping malls. And all the mental and soulful nutrition we ingested there opened our minds and hearts to the wonders of living. Learning was not something relegated to a schoolroom. It was, and still is, a way of life for me. If I had only spent my days on the stoops, life would have been empty. It's all about the other things, those museums downtown or in my own yard, that made life more interesting and more enlightening when I did sit on my stoop of Atlantis. Thanks for listening in to the Stoops of Atlantis with Mikey D. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to rate it on whatever app you're using. And you could also leave a message at the Facebook page or contact me at stoopsmail at yahoo.com. Until next time. Mm-hmm.